Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. How much is too much road and sidewalk salt? A big win for Bonnie Crombie, a new online news deal. Dan Giancola has written a new book, Learn About Stigmatized Homes. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to talk about snow, or at least here, counselors talk about snow and accessibility on our roads and sidewalks uh, later on this morning where there's a committee meeting being held to talk about a new report in which it's going to outline how we as a community should improve our accessibility on roads and sidewalks during snow events. And last week we got our first taste of snow and while not a lot of the white stuff landed on the ground and, and stayed on the ground for very long, Environment Canada, or Environment Hamilton that is, wants to know why so much salt is put on our roads when it does snow. So I saw a post on X last week from Environment Hamilton, which said, quote, we need to have a serious conversation in Hamilton about how much salt was put out on our roadways in response to the brief bit of snow we had this week. Overkill seems like an understatement in some areas. Here to talk about it is the interim executive director at Environment Hamilton, Ian Borsick. Ian, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Rick. Uh, good to talk to you. I think we're we're thankful that our roads and sidewalks are not slippery by the salt that is put on our roads. But the question, and, and you're kind of you know uh, banting it about with the the post on X, how much is too much? What did you see? Yeah, I mean, it. Firstly, it's really important to note that uh, improving accessibility around the city is absolutely vital. And a lot of the efforts that the city of Hamilton has taken to ensure that folks who, you know, have mobility devices or just, you know, need to walk to the bus stop or something like that are able to do so uh, is really important. But I think we're, you know, we in some areas of the city, uh, as we've seen, especially with, you know, a very brief snowfall that melted uh, very quickly. Um, you know, salt has a pretty significant impact on the environment. Uh, saline- salinization of our waterways has been a growing problem that uh, scientists and researchers across Ontario and elsewhere in North America have have really been raising uh, over the years. And just looking at the sheer amount of salt that we've been putting down, it's overkill, I think. And ultimately, when we end up with, a, you know, a sidewalk or a roadway that uh, it feels like you're walking on gravel um, because of how much salt was put down. Um, we, we've crossed the line from making an accessible uh, road or sidewalk into, uh, you know, just covering it with salt. Uh, that will end up in our waterways and uh, we end up as a city paying for it or uh, dealing with the environmental impacts as it impacts the local ecosystem. Yeah, and imagine being in a um, a wheelchair or a mobility device in which... You know, I know the city wants to make the sidewalk or the road accessible, but now we're in an inaccessible circumstance because of too much salt. What should the standard be? Yeah, well, ultimately, municipalities need to look into alternatives and how to use those alternatives more. Um, I'm sure a lot of listeners over the years have heard about different options that are out there, such as brine from, uh, you know, pickle juice or uh, the uh, outcome of uh, making some sweet beets. Um, There can be some environmental impacts from the sugars in that, but it can be more preferable to using salt, which ultimately ends up uh, putting chloride into our local waterways. But I also think an important uh, step that we've taken as a municipality is taking over the responsibility of clearing uh, major arterial sidewalks, because Ultimately, at the end of the day, I think 
a real problem that we see is private business owners, private uh, property owners, uh, people who own their own home, um, who are responsible for the clearing of their sidewalk. Um, you don't want to be responsible for someone not being able to pass by your home or, you know, even worse, someone slipping and falling. Um, but I think with the city taking over that responsibility, um, it allows a lot more control to go into place. It allows more standards to be put into place. Um, and it takes the onus away from a private property owner, uh, you know, tossing out probably way too much salt. And, you know, it's impacting them. They're, they're the ones paying for it. Um, so I think that's really important. But I think as well, the city of Hamilton can do a better job of educating the public when it does come to salting these roadways. Um you know, you don't actually need as much as what's been put down. And, you know, anecdotally, uh, walking around the downtown, um, it can also be frustrating as a pedestrian when you pass by a private property where um, it almost seems the property owner or manager has used salt instead of shoveling altogether. <laughs> um, and so I think there's a lot of discussion that we could have in public education about the impacts that salt has and, you know, really maybe uh, having a much larger conversation as a city about, well, what is the appropriate amount? All good points from our guest, Ian Borsick, the Interim Executive Director from Environment Hamilton. We're talking about the use of salt and perhaps in many cases too much salt on our roads and sidewalks during snow events. And uh, by the way, last year was the first year that the uh, city began clearing all municipally owned sidewalks of snow and ice. Are other cities doing it differently? Differently or, or even better in some cases? Yes, it's a, it's a bit of a mishmash. I mean, this is a problem that pretty much any city that deals with regular winters like Hamilton does has to deal with. Um, and depending on uh, the local ecosystems in the area, you know, we, there are more significant impacts elsewhere. But we have seen oxygen levels in places like Lake Ontario decrease. Um, obviously, we're not the only municipality um, you know, dumping salt into the local waterways that ends up in Lake Ontario. But we have seen some really interesting uh, efforts get underway from other municipalities, not even just in North America, but elsewhere. As I mentioned before, you know, pickle juice brine is a good alternative. Um, you know, ensuring that there's proper clearing of the road, you know, using shovels or machinery like we're using in the city of Hamilton now on major arterials, that can go a long way. Um, and I think it's also really important to note that having consistency of the clearing is also really important because one of the major reasons why disability justice advocates and, and other groups around the city were really pushing for the city to do clearing of the sidewalks was if you leave it up to private property owners, you know, someone may be sick and unable to do so on a, on a certain day, and then that renders the entire side of their block unusable. Um, and that's just because of one person. When you when you make it a collective responsibility, um, it becomes much more easy to deal with and much more uniform to deal with and allows people who have who rely on mobility and walking around the city um, that consistency in the winter that they have elsewhere around, uh, throughout the year. But I think ultimately, at the same time, too, there needs to be a discussion about the amount of salt that is happening on private properties. We've seen um, the city move forward with the stormwater fee that is going to be implemented, and that's going to have uh, some in some incentives potentially for private property owners uh, to do things about their wastewater or the stormwater they'll be running off their property. And hopefully uh, that will lead to these private commercial property owners maybe thinking about 
you know, how much salt they're putting down in their uh, parking lot if they're the ones who are going to have to pay for dealing with that runoff. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of positive uh, uh, steps that the city of Hamilton has already taken. And we, I think we just need to, you know, kind of continue with it and uh, do our best uh, for I- its impacts on the environment. For sure. Ian, well said. Thanks for the time today. And uh, we'll, we'll get an update, I'm sure, from city councillors later on this morning on this aspect. Uh, appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Rick. Ian Borsick is the Interim Executive Director with Environment Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie has been chosen to lead the Ontario Liberal Party. She won after three rounds of balloting this weekend, beating out Naderskin Smith and Yasser Nakvi and Ted Chu. And while Crombie said that the campaign was tough, she admits that the upcoming battle against Premier Doug Ford is going to be even tougher. We have built this big, strong, liberal team and now I hate to break it to you but we have to dig a little deeper you know why because Doug Ford and his conservatives they will be coming after us at any minute now joining us to talk about Bonnie's big win is Colin DeMello our Queens Park Bureau Chief at Global News Colin welcome back to the show how are you Good morning. Thank you for having me. I don't think anyone is too surprised at the final results from this weekend, but maybe what was more surprising is that Crombie needed three votes to get the nod. What would you say? Well, there definitely was a lot of tension in the room between, you know, the first and the second ballots and definitely between the second and the third ballots. It was more anticipation than I think many of them had expected, but largely the um, you know, the expectation was set up by Bonnie Crombie's team, right? After the vote had taken place, uh, they started signaling that, hey, you know, this could be a first ballot victory. So really, if if the um, the results didn't quite reflect the expectation, it's because Crombie's team kind of erred and set that expectation. But nevertheless, I mean, you know, she she had a strong showing on the first and it just continued to grow. But there were a couple of moments there where it seemed a bit touch and go for her. And she, uh, you know, you could tell was feeling all of that, that that stress and the strain of the moment um, at the convention center on Saturday. The big question now is whether or not she jumps into a potential seat in the legislature or just waits for the election to happen, which could uh, be in you know three years time, two and a half, three years time. Is there any sense on which way she's leaning? Yeah, I mean, as of right now, I think what she's going to do is try to take a look at what would be the most opportunistic and uh, the the one that really aligns, right? The stars have to align. Uh, there is an upcoming by-election that's going to be in Monty McNaughton's old riding, but that is a progressive conservative stronghold. Does it make sense to run a liberal leadership or, um, you know, a liberal leader there and then have them lose and have the uh, embarrassment that comes with it? Probably not. So she's going to probably wait for a particular seat to open up. I think if a Mississauga seat opened up, she would jump in the chance to um, to jump in. Uh, but as of right now, it seems like she's more focused on fundraising rather than anything else, uh, trying to raise a million dollars for the party by the end of the year so she doesn't have a lot of time. And, and some of the advisors that she has, whether it's the cur- the interim leader, John Fraser, or even some of her opponents like Yasser Nakvi are saying, you know, she could do more from the outside. Remember, this is a party that was decimated in two elections. Uh, and when that happens, the structure of the party kind of collapses. So she has to rebuild that party in earnest before the next election. That includes not just the uh, fundraising aspect of it, but convincing people to come into the tent, convincing people to volunteer 
uh, for the Ontario Liberal Party so they can be in a strong, striking position in 2026. Seems to be a unique um, relationship between Bonnie Crombie and Premier Doug Ford. They go way back in obviously the political world. This might be a, a fun kind of relationship to watch over the next few years. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and, and the two of them also have a, a shared mentor in Hazel McCallion, right? I mean, Doug Ford revered Hazel McCallion, went to her for advice, would meet with her for breakfast quite often to pick her brain on on policy issues. Uh, in, in fact, you know, Hazel McCallion means so much to Premier Doug Ford that he has a a, a bill in the legislature, a law called the Hazel McCallion Act that looks at separating Mississauga into its own city. And of course, Bonnie Crombie kind of came up through the political ranks under uh, Hazel McCallion's tutelage. So there obviously is this, you know, shared um, mutual bond between the two of them in Hazel McCallion. And, and Premier Ford and, and uh, you know, uh, Bonnie Crombie have gotten along in public and in private before. So this will be an interesting relationship. The two are also quite similar in the sense that Bonnie Crombie is, you know, a populist uh, in, in, in certain respects. She definitely would be a little bit more on the popular side of things rather than uh, policy driven. So the two of them have some shared commonalities when it comes to presenting to voters. So that will be, I think, in a general election, the most interesting thing is there a contrast between the two of them or are they basically shadow images of each other and, and are, if people are willing to jump away from doug ford are they willing to kind of jump but to the closest uh, resemblance of doug ford it's gonna be fun to watch colin always appreciate your time thanks for joining us today my pleasure thanks for having me colin demello is queen's park bureau chief for global news and you can check out his latest reporting today in the global news at 5 30 and 6 you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml three weeks before canada's online news act comes into effect we have a deal federal government and google finally coming together and Google will continue to share Canadian news content online in return for about $100 million in annual payments to news organizations. Google had threatened to block Canadian news content because of Bill C-18, like Meta has done on Facebook and Instagram. Michael Geist is a law professor at the University of Ottawa, the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, and a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Michael, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Is this a win-win-win-win? I mean, we have the government, we have Google, we have news organizations, we have Canadians who are consuming this content, or did one side come out on top? Well, I think it's good news that there is a deal. Uh, I think it's also pretty clear that Google won this particular battle. At the end of the day, they've agreed to basically what they put on the table a year ago, and the government, to get there, had to largely upend its legislation. This is in a sense, not Bill C-18. The government really had to make significant changes to its law in order to accommodate. And I must say, it's counterintuitive, but I think there may well be a loser here. And that, oddly, are the print publishers, not the broadcasters who stand to get about three-quarters of the money, but print publishers who are only left with, according to the Parliamentary Budget Officer, just 25% or $25 And I think if we look at some of the deals, some of those publishers already had with Google, Many of them actually stand to lose money from Google alone, never mind all the losses from Meta. Why did it take the federal government so long to realize that, uh, listen, we, we have to, and I think that the original ask was $172 million, but even a part of this 
was the formation of a single group that Google would deal with that would represent all media. Why did it take so long for the government to figure that out? Well, I think it's not what they wanted to do. You know, the government wanted to be able to say that they were not getting directly involved in media payments, that they were simply creating a framework that would allow Google and media companies to negotiate. But that would leave hundreds of media companies negotiating with Google, and Google balked at that prospect. And as you say, the, the numbers were far higher. That $172 million, that's what they estimated back in the in the fall when they put out some draft regulations. But we could go back even further, and the numbers were even higher than that. The you know, parliamentary budget officer estimated that $330 million was going to be the take from this legislation. That was from Google and Meta, but Google was going to take two-thirds of that. So we were talking at about $200 million with some of the estimates that they had at, at different points in time. Talking about Canada's Online News Act, is the federal government and Google have reached a deal with our guest, Michael Geist, law professor with the University of Ottawa. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Michael, does this deal perhaps just crack the door a little open for an agreement between the federal government and Meta? Maybe just a very little bit, but I think it's still probably unlikely. And, and part of that stems from the fact that Meta and Google always looked at news differently. Google was open to a deal, and they, they made it clear from day one that they were, but they were concerned about the bill itself, and they were concerned about the kinds of numbers that were being floated around. Meta looked at it differently. They said, listen, news just does not have much value on our platform. People spend the same amount of time, whether they're looking at memes or pictures of friends or news content. And, you know, months of news blocking has, has borne that out, according to reports, that this hasn't had an impact on the amount of time people spend on the site. So, you know, there isn't a ton of motivation to come back, but I would say that given that the government has now shown itself willing to basically trash its own law and come up with almost a bespoke set of rules, so do whatever they need to do to get some of these players back again, uh, perhaps they'll be able to find a way to do so with Meta. Because we've heard a lot of politicians, many with the federal liberals, saying, you know, there's a lot of misinformation, there's a lot of disinformation on Facebook. Do you think they'll tweak their deal even further to get Meta on board? Well, I think it's pretty clear they're going to have to to get Meta on board, uh, even that $100 million that Google's paying. And we should note that, as I, as I alluded to, Google had existing deals. So I'm estimating that almost half of that money is not new money, but instead is money that they already spent. In Meta's case, uh, they have indicated they're just not willing to spend much of anything on news. It just doesn't have value for them. So if they're going to get Meta on board, it's going to have to be largely with the goal of simply getting those news links unblocked, I think, without any sort of significant payments. Does this deal that the federal government has reached, does it set a precedent for other countries, or are other countries doing it better? Well, I think in some ways it's a cautionary tale. And that cautionary tale is that, you know, that there is, there is an opportunity to get participation from these companies, but there are risks as well. And I think the government largely ignored those risks, which is why it was left looking to find some way to salvage the deal. Yeah, that is pretty clear. Michael, thank you for your time and your insight this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Michael Geist is a law professor with the University of Ottawa, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. He's got a lot of things going on and uh, a lot of great insight into this uh, 
new deal between the federal government and Google. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is being called an inspiring story of how to chase your dreams and never giving up hope regardless of the challenges. Former grocery store clerk turned CFL kicker Dan Giancola profiles his ups and his downs in a new book titled Be That One. Why does it have to be someone else? Why not me? Joining us now on GMH is Mr. Dan Giancola, former CFL kicker and a Grey Cup champion. Dan, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? And thank you so much for having me on. What are you up to these days? Oh, man, you know, <laughs> just recently an author. Uh, um, I'm, uh, I've been at my fitness studio for uh, about 11 years now, BTO Performance and Thorold. And uh, yeah, man, just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Writing a book is no easy task. Um, why did you jump into this? Uh, you know, I wanted to do this for such a long time. And um, I'll be honest with you, I, I had so much fun writing this book. Um I started January 3rd and, and I kind of gave myself a goal. I said, by the end of October, um, I want to have this book done and I want to have it published. And, uh, you know, sure enough, yeah, honestly, to date, I think it was like November, first week of November, uh, the book came out on Amazon and uh, it's been nothing but amazing since. Perry Lefko, the great uh, journalist and writer helping you along, and I'm sure he was uh, a valuable addition to this. But this is a bestseller already. Are you... Are you shocked by that? Is this a big surprise? Honestly, uh, I am. Um, but I mean, at the same time, I'm not because um, I really lucked out with Perry. Uh, Perry Lefko has covered me my entire career playing professional football. And for me, that was um, that was kind of like that push over the edge kind of thing. When Once I knew that Perry was going to help me with this book, um, I, I just, yeah, I just kind of thought that this is going to be special. Dan Giancola is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dan is a former CFL kicker, a Grey Cup champion, now the author of Be That One. Why does it have to be someone else? Why not me? You can pick it up wherever you get your favorite books, including on Amazon. Looking back on your football career, I mean, you were in a grocery terminal making minimum wage. You get an opportunity to kick in the CFL and you make the absolute most of it. Uh, with a dynamite rookie campaign, looking back on everything that you achieved, are you still kind of pinching yourself on how it all went? You know, it um, when you're playing, uh, you don't really realize it. I, I think when years pass after the game has kind of passed you by, you kind of take a step back and you look back on it and you think to yourself, like, while I was writing this book, you know, the purpose of writing the book, honestly, was to tell my story about beating the odds. I went to 131 free agent camps, you know, over like six, seven years and, um, you know, never taking no for an answer, even though I was told no 131 times. And, you know, and, and that's what I kind of wanted the book to be about, you know, beating the odds, you know, on, on the, on the football field, but also beating the odds in life. I've, you know, I've had three years of, um, some pretty crappy health, you know, so yeah. I want to get to the the off field challenges that you have faced, but I do have to ask. Yes, uh, were the Tiger Cats ever in the mix? I mean, we're in Hamilton. We're, we're, we broadcast Tiger Cats games. Did they ever say, "Hey, Dan, we'd love for you to play," or did you say, "Hey, Tiger Cats, I'd love to play for you guys"? 
You know, one thing I wanted I wanted to actually have in the book, and unfortunately, it only came to me. Honestly, it came to me uh, as the book was done. You know, the reason why I fell in love with the Canadian Football League was because of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. When they, especially when they were practicing, they had their training camps at Brock University, which was only, uh, you know, hop, skip and jump from my house. And I used to go every training camp and I grabbed my one football, my run, one, one rubber football. And I used to go in the far field and um, just boot the ball for hours while they'd be practicing and I can't tell you the amount of times I talked to Rob Hitchcock, who became a very good friend of mine, and Paulus Bolatin, um, you know, at the time, Anthony Cavillo, Jim, D- I mean, like, oh, my God, I could just keep going on and on with all these names. And that's when I fell in love with the game. Uh, back in, I think, 2004, before I signed with um, back in Toronto and we won the Grey Cup that year, I actually went to free agent camp with, uh, with the Ticats and I had an outstanding, an outstanding workout. And I thought for sure, wow, like this is my opportunity. And uh, unfortunately, they passed me on. And and that's, you know, that's the game. That's the nature of the beast. But I've always been a, I've always been a Ticat fan. Got a couple of minutes to talk about those off-field challenges that you hinted at. You uh, have been throughout your playing career and even post-playing career in great physical shape. You mentioned you were running, you know, a gym for several years, but you suffered a near-fatal heart attack. You also had a stroke. You had a lot of other family members diagnosed with cancer. How did you survive all this? You, it's the doctor said in both cases is what they call best-case scenario. Uh, May twentieth, two thousand twenty. I was teaching my online class here at the studio for free during COVID. Um, and all of a sudden I had uh, major, major flu-like symptoms coming on. Anyway, long story short, um, I had what they called the Widowmaker, and I should have died here in my studio. Two years after that, in August uh, 2022, it's August 17, I had a massive stroke, uh, what they call a grade 17. And if my uh, my friend didn't find me, uh, within minutes of having the stroke and having me at the hospital administrating administering the shot um, within 45 minutes of my stroke, uh, I would have been brain dead or uh, or a vegetable the rest of my life. So by the grace of God, I'm still here. And, and that's what I wanted this book to be about, beating the odds on the field and beating the odds in life. And uh, I'm just very grateful. Well, you've beaten the odds many times, and it is an inspiring story that I encourage all our listeners to get a hold of. Be That One is the name of the book. You can get it in your favorite bookstore, online uh, or physical. Dan, appreciate the time. Best of luck with this already bestseller. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for your time. I, I can't tell you how much it means to me. Likewise. Dan Giancolo, former CFL kicker, Grey Cup champion, author of Be That One. Why does it have to be someone else? Why not me? It sounds like an excellent read. Looking forward to diving into it myself. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, if you're selling your home, there are certain things that you must disclose. If you have a leaky basement or a leaky roof, you have to tell the buyer, listen, you know, we need a little work done. That goes without saying. But what if something bad happened in your home? God forbid. And what if you believe that your house is actually haunted? Maybe you've seen something or you have felt something. Do you have to disclose that? Let's talk about stigmatized properties. Clay Jarvis is a real estate and financial expert with NerdWallet and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Clay, how are you? Morning. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Let's start with disclosure in general. What does that mean? 
Well, a disclosure is a part of or something that the buyer or sorry, the seller needs to do to let buyers have a fair chance to understand what either has happened in the property or things that might be wrong with the property. And what is the penalty for not doing so? Well, I guess it depends what you're not disclosing, because uh, as you mentioned, these stigmatized uh, properties, you're not really legally obligated to disclose anything um, that isn't structurally wrong with a property outside of Quebec. In, in Quebec, you it, it's a law. Uh, if something has happened in a property that might elicit certain negative uh, emotions in a buyer, you have to disclose those. Um, but everywhere else in the country, you don't really have to. So if a crime was committed in your home, if uh, someone uh, died in their home, even from old age, you do not have to disclose that here in Ontario? No, no, you do not. Um, I mean, it's encouraged. You want to be completely upfront uh, when you're dealing with a massive transaction like this and this, this kind of money changing hands. You want to make sure that everybody's getting into it with their eyes completely wide open. Um, but, uh, you know, people are people. And not everybody approaches everything with the same level of uh, openness. Because obviously, you know, a home buyer would, you know, ingest that information. And some people might say, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm OK with that. While others would say, "Nah, this is not my slice of bread. That's exactly the issue because it's subjective. Um, you know, some people, if there was a grow up in a house, that would really bother them. Uh, other people, they might not really care. Uh, they just want to get a property, and if they find something out that's negative about it, well, then maybe you can use that as a bargaining chip. Is there a place where a prospective buyer can go to learn what has happened in a particular home? Um, well, there would be administrative records. Uh, you know, there'd be legal records if, if a, a house was part of a crime and there was a prosecution. Um, you could find that, um, but normally, not really. Uh, because it isn't a real codified thing or structured thing, there might not necessarily be some place where you can go find it officially. Clay Jarvis is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Clay is uh, an expert in real estate and finances and is with us from NerdWallet. Um, does this, I guess, speak to the importance of, if you're a home buyer and you're looking at a particular property, does this speak to the importance of speaking with neighbors to say, hey, what can you tell me about this house? I mean, that's an option. Uh, that really only helps, though, if something happened to the house that was visible on the outside. You know, if you had a, a really successful drug operation in your house <laughs> and there were people streaming through your yard um, every day, people would notice that. Uh, but if it's something a little more subtle, uh, it's not necessarily something that everybody's going to know about in your neighborhood. Interesting that Quebec is the only province to mandate this. Do we know why and why other provinces have not jumped on board? That I wouldn't be able to speak to, but I think that in Quebec there are a few more, a few more instruments in place to protect uh, real estate buyers. Um, they're, they're a very kind of consumer-focused uh, province, I would say. Um, Ontario maybe not quite as uh, what's the word I'm looking for. They don't maybe have their fingers involved uh, quite as much as Quebec would right. in a, in several. Uh, Several aspects. When it comes to stigmatized properties, how big, if it is disclosed, how big of an, of an impact will it have on the home's value? Well, again, because this is more of uh, a situation where it's up to the buyer, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, let's say you have a house where there was a murder um, or there was a house where people think it's haunted. 
you know, these, these are things that are could add value to, to certain buyers. Well, for others, it might just make it a place you need to completely walk away from. Um, and in a market like Toronto, especially when things are, are pretty active, I think a lot of people aren't really going to budge on their prices mm-hmm. um, if it's something that's subjective. I, I would say maybe only in the month of October, if you're advertising a home for sale that is quote-unquote haunted, that might intrigue a few more people? Well, that's just it. I mean, we really you really don't know as a seller what is going to turn your buyers on or turn them off. Um, so, you know, you might luck out and it's like you said, it's October. People are looking for something freaky. And, oh, here's this house where a family was slaughtered. Here we go. Call our agent. <laughs> yeah, that might scare a lot of people away, I'm sure. It should do. Yeah, who knows? Last one for you. We know the housing market is really tight in terms of supply and prices have, you know, kind of fluctuated over the last number of months. It, it, would a stigmatized property, I guess it depends on the buyer, you know, scare a lot of people away or do they in this day and age just want to get in a house? Well, I think the desire to actually get a house is probably overwhelming for a lot of people. But there are certain cases where a stigmatized property can create legitimate health concerns. Um, you know, if somebody did have a grow up and it wasn't well ventilated or they were messing around with the uh, the electrical system on their own, well, that could cause mold problems or it could cause electrical hazards. Um, and if somebody was running, let's say, a drug operation from their house, or in the case of that uh, that kid out in Burlington ripping off crypto investors for millions of dollars, <laughs> you know, you might have people coming to the house, knocking on the door, looking for their money, looking for some sort of satisfaction or revenge. And that's that's a legitimate health concern. Absolutely. Clay, I'm glad we had this conversation. Thanks for the time today and enjoy your day. Thanks, man. Anytime. Clay Jarvis, a real estate and financial expert with Nerd Wallet, talking about stigmatized properties. Good Morning Hamilton's Christmas Movie Madness is on tap once again today. Listen each and every day after the news at 7 when two of the greatest Christmas movie and TV characters go head-to-head and you vote for which one will be crowned the all-time best. Today's matchup, Scott Calvin as Santa Claus in The Santa Claus versus George Bailey, played by James Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life. Check out the bracket. Vote for your favorite now online at 900chml.com. Just look for the Christmas Movie Madness banner on the homepage. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900chml. Earlier this year, the Bank of Canada sent out an online questionnaire asking Canadians about their opinion on a digital currency in this country issued by the central bank. And of the 90,000, nearly 90,000 respondents, 85%, an overwhelming majority, said they would not use a digital Canadian dollar. So why then is the Bank of Canada starting to lay the groundwork for a digital currency either sometime soon or sometime down the road? Ori Fryman is a postdoctoral fellow of the Digital Society Lab at McMaster University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ori, good morning. How are you? Good morning to you. I'm good. Thank you. What is a digital currency? Because nowadays, no one really carries cash. We're all with our debit or credit cards. Is that not a digital currency? So um, a few things. First of all, it's true that cash is used less and less in an economy where there's more digital transactions and more electronic payments. But cash is used, and at least least, uh, uh, according to the results of this uh, 
consultation. So cash is uh, majorly used. Uh, so that's one thing. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a offer for new kind of money. It's a digital Canadian dollar. It's something that uh, it's very different than the digital money that we already see uh, in bank accounts. Um, the main difference is the what we call liability. If uh, the money that I have in my bank account is um, uh, uh, the commercial bank is liable to it. So here we see a new kind of money, like similar to banknotes, the Bank of Canada will be liable to it, but it will be digital. And so this would be basically the same as a cryptocurrency, correct? Um, no, no, no. Okay. Cryptocurrency, the way we know them, it's like the mostly decentralized and we don't know like the mechanism of how to govern them. And here it, it, it will be digital, same as digital currencies, but the Bank of Canada will be in charge about uh, uh, for operating them. I understand that the big banks are not a fan of this, and I'm guessing because it would impact their bottom line. So there are arguments that they worry that, uh, for example, if the new um, uh, digital currency would have interests, uh, so they feel that customers would prefer to hold that instead of the commercial bank money. But the Bank of Canada actually said that it would not bear interest. So they reduced that worry, uh, at least that worry for the future. Ori Fryman is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ori is a postdoctoral fellow in the Digital Society Lab at McMaster University. And we're talking about a digital currency, uh, who knows, someday down the road being issued by the Bank of Canada. Is there an appetite for this? Are, are politicians talking about this? To, According to the survey, we don't want to see one in this country. But is the conversation being had that sometime soon we might see this? So there's a number of points to make. First of all, um, the Bank of Canada are doing great work in, in preparing the ground in case the legislator, the parliament, we decide that we need one. So the the decision to take, if to go out and issue this something like this, belongs to the to the parliament and the government. Um, so they're doing a good groundwork in preparing uh, what uh, a digital Canadian dollar might be. And the good reason to prepare for this because our economy becomes more and more digital. And it's, it's, it's another means of payment. However, there are worries about it. Um, a lot, a lot of things with regard to privacy and they have a lot of work to do. Uh, as we've seen the results of the, of the consultation, a lot of distrust regarding data privacy. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other countries that have a digital currency? Um, so there are um, um, there are other countries uh, who already issued one, mostly like small East Caribbean countries that already uh, use this. The other countries are with pilots. Uh, we know China is having uh, a huge pilot about it. Um, and other than that, I think that most economies in the world, more than 130 central banks around the world, are seriously exploring this option. If you had to wager a guess, would you say within five years, Canada would have a digital currency? I'm not good with these kind of guesses, <laughs> but um, I, I'll tell you what. I think that if they will do it correctly, it is possible to issue one. The main issue here is about trust. Trust is a, a necessary thing when it comes to a national currency. And the pace to develop something like this, unlike you know other technologies that we know, the pace should be very slow 
because it's the financial ecosystem and, and things need to be stable. And they know that they're doing good work regarding that. I would agree with that. If you're going to do it, uh, you better do it right and get it right the first time. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're behind <laughs> There's the There's no evil. second chance with yeah, this. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Ori, I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the day. Yeah, thank you, too, and thanks to all listeners. Ori Freiman is a postdoctoral fellow in the Digital Society Lab at McMaster University. And uh, I should mention that the Bank of Canada, and I think Ori kind of referenced this as well, um, said any digital currency would not pay interest or require you to disclose private information to access the payment system. So who knows? Sometime down the road, I'm sure we'll see some form of this digital currency. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.